I'm going to speak to you this morning about the revelation of Jesus's divine mission. So please open God's word with me to Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, and we'll be covering down to verse 39. By the time we come to Mark 121, we've already covered a lot about Jesus's mission here on earth. In the first chapter, we've already covered his commissioning into his ministry, into his mission. He was commissioned by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to reveal God's good news to man. Then he went on to announce himself as the king by saying that the kingdom of God was near and it was evidenced through his preaching of repentance. Then he moved from that announcement to summoning men to join him in his divine mission. And now here in Mark 1, 21 to 39, Mark's going to give us three powerful testimonies about Jesus's divine mission. I'll give you an outline here. In verses 21 to 39, we hear three testimonies that reveal, number one, Jesus's unique authority. Number two, Jesus' uncommon mercy. And number three, this testimony also is given to us here to reveal Jesus' unwavering humility. Now, I break that down into an outline to make it easy for you to follow and jot down and go back to this as a reference. This text reveals Jesus' unique authority, his uncommon mercy, his unwavering humility. And it's something that we need to see if we're going to fulfill the mission he's given to us. So let's begin at the beginning there in verse 21. And here we were hearing the first testimony about Jesus's divine mission. This passage testifies to Jesus's unique authority. Look at verse 21. It says this, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he that is Jesus With his disciples, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. That's rather blunt of Mark to say, I think, when you stop and maybe consider what that would look like today. It would be like Ronnie or Justin or Nate or I walking into a town, to a church, and just walking up to the pulpit and taking over. It seems kind of drastic. It seems kind of odd to us. If you think about it, you don't see that normally. But actually, that was normal in this day. That was normal for a rabbi to walk into a synagogue visiting that town and walk immediately up to begin to teach at the proper time. Synagogue worship at that time began with singing psalms, and then a prayer was given, and then a rabbi was asked to read from the law of God and then teach on that portion he was given expositionally. Well, they... They tended to to lean away from exposition and leaned heavily on commentary of others rather than what the text actually said. But this was the practice that was supposed to be given to protect the word of God and feed the people. And so when, when a rabbi came to town, like Jesus coming to town as a visiting rabbi, a visiting teacher, they recognized that he was here by God's direction for some reason. They didn't understand necessarily why, but they would ask that visiting rabbi, to come and actually fill the seat of Moses and teach in the synagogue what was read. 
And that's what's happening here in this text. He's entering the synagogue and begins to do exactly what was expected of a visiting rabbi, except his message was unique. His message was different than that of the other visiting rabbis or the rabbis that were there currently. Jesus' explanation or exposition of the text that was given him was unlike anything they had ever heard before. Now, we don't have the text. We don't have what he said in that sermon, in that lesson as he taught. But we have the reaction. We have the testimony of the reality of what was inside of that teaching here in our text. It's clear in this text that he wasn't teaching like any of the scribes before him, as testified by the people. His, his teaching, according to their testimony, was powerful simply because it was authoritative. It was unique that way. Mark tells us that his teaching of the law of God was completely other than what they had been hearing from the scribes. In one way, it was different because he wasn't quoting from other men when he taught. He was quoting directly from within himself. He was quoting God, for that's who he was. He knew the word. He knew it, and he actually lived what he preached. And that gave him definite authority above all those before him. The people recognized this. In verse 22, you hear the first testimony of Jesus' divine mission. That it was definitely unique. The people themselves are testifying that his teaching had a unique authority attached to it. Unlike any other man's teaching. Look how they react in verse 22. When they heard this, he's talking about when they heard this teaching. They were, notice the word, astonished in the ESV. They were astonished at his teaching for or because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. As, as they hear him quietly in their seats, as they hear him teach, inside of them, they respond. They recognize something. They recognize something internally in them. And actually, when it's using this word astonished, it, it actually speaks of being shaken on the inside when he taught. Could you guys just picture yourselves there? I mean, picture the best sermons you've ever heard. Compile all of them together. And they don't hold a candle to this one. Because of the one who spoke it. Was the word of God himself. There was something resonating in his creatures when they heard him speak. They recognized that his authority didn't come from commentaries. It didn't come from others. And that's what they were accustomed to. They were accustomed to the rabbis, again, leaning heavily on the commentaries of other rabbis who taught and applied and added things to God's law. But here in this text, Mark says something very unique about Jesus' teaching. He taught them as one who had authority. Now, in the Greek, it's really hard to break this down for you to understand it just in a straightforward reading. But what it literally says is this. He spoke as one who had exousia. Exousia. Ek meaning out. Okay? What it means is this. He spoke as one who had authority internally. 
He spoke out of his internal authority. It's what Mark is actually telling us. He spoke out as the very voice of God incarnate. The very reason and wisdom of God in the flesh was speaking to these people out of his internal authority. And they testified to it internally. But they weren't the only ones there testifying to his authority, his unique authority. There was another testimony of Jesus's unique authority in this this congregation. And it came from one who was his enemy. Look at verse 23. It says this immediately. After they had heard him immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. A demon-possessed man. A demon-possessed man cried out a true testimony about who Jesus is and his authority. Look what it says in verse 24. Here's what he cried out. What have you to do with us? Now, the demon is speaking through the man. I don't believe there's a plurality of demons in this man. He's using the man as his instrument, as his tool, so he speaks in the plural here. He says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And here's his statement about Jesus' testimony. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Certainly a true testimony of Jesus' unique authority coming from one who recognized him, again, internally. This demon within this man recognized who Jesus was and what he was doing. And it says that the demon cried out. Now, there are two reasons that I believe the demon cried out. Number one, I believe that the demon cried out in the presence of Christ's authoritative teaching and presence because of fear in the demon's heart that he would soon be cast into hell. That's what he was afraid of. But I also believe there was anger in this demon. And I think that that's really what we see being expressed in the way in which he speaks this testimony. I think that this demon, the way he cries out of this man in the midst of Jesus' teaching, could you imagine what that would look like? I believe the way he does that is in order to, or it's done in such a way to discredit Christ's mission. I believe he's trying to distract from his teaching. Yes, he's afraid. Yes, he's fearful. We can see that. But he's also trying to direct the attention away from Christ because he knows he's a threat to him eternally. Now, this is a sad situation. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church setting when someone interrupts a sermon, but I have. It's not much fun. Like a train. I'm pretty sure it's not demon-possessed, though. I've been in a setting where I'm preaching, and I've been in settings where other men are preaching, and someone is outwardly agitated by the message that was given. And they do whatever they can to distract and discredit the one preaching. And I believe that's evil. I believe it comes from a spirit of evil from within that person. But here in particular, we know that it's not just human depravity, it's demonic activity. 
crying out to try to disrupt the Holy One of God as he teaches authoritatively in this synagogue. But notice what Jesus does in verse 25. It just testifies to his authority. Look what it says. Jesus rebuked him. It doesn't say Jesus said, God rebuke you. It doesn't say that Jesus said, let's get four other guys with me and we're going to cast you out. Jesus spoke to the demon directly. Be silent and come out of him. Now that's authority. And what's really happening here is, is whether the demon knows it or not, the demon's testimony is only serving to reveal Jesus' authority. Look at this. Jesus didn't seek help, didn't seek others to silence this disruption. Again, in the text, he says something very unique about this. It says this in Mark's gospel, verse 25. Jesus spoke directly to this demon and said to him, Fimo. It means shut up. And what happens? Verse 26. The unclean spirit convulsing him, the man, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. The demon was screaming in response to this command, not wanting to be cast out of a body. But the demon came out kicking and screaming, yet he came out at the voice of Christ's authority. He obeyed the authoritative voice of King Jesus. And again, this, this testified to everyone around in the synagogue that Jesus had truly a unique type of authority. And the people recognized it very clearly, and they react to this man screaming out and this demon coming out of him by the very command of Jesus to shut him up. Look at the reaction in verse 27. Now here, before the people were testifying internally, now here it transitions, it changes from an internal testimony about his teaching authority to one of external amazement and testimony. Verse 27 says, After seeing this happen, they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? Now before, again, it was internal. Now it's spontaneous when they see the authoritative work of Christ being displayed over this demon. They're amazed. They're amazed by his new teaching that came with authority, the text says. It was new to them for sure. They'd never seen anything like this. It was new to them because it was fresh from God himself. His teaching was drawn from the word and empowered by the spirit. It was full of divine strength, authority. His authority was uniquely empowered by God, because that's who he was. And he could speak directly to one of his created beings and command him to do whatever he desires. And that is exactly what they saw. Testifying 
that he was supremely authoritative over all things, including demons. This, this public testimony was obviously stirred up from this deep desire to know more of what he is saying. They're, they're just, they want to know who this is, what he's going to do next, what's he going to teach us. And they begin to question among themselves, what is this? What's going on here? And by doing this, by questioning like this, by talking to one another like this, you know they were stirring up conversation. And when they left that synagogue, do you think that conversation stopped? No way. They're walking out into the street. They're going through all the different regions of Galilee. And they're saying, you will not believe what we heard today and who said it and how he evidenced the power of God like no other. And they began to give public testimony to his authority everywhere they went. We see that in verse 28. It's obvious. It says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. His fame was spreading everywhere. How? By their testimony to his authority. They couldn't help themselves. His testimony was bursting out of the people explosively as they walked from place to place all throughout this region. They couldn't help but testify because of his words and his works, his actions were like no other. As I I read that and as I thought about that, I thought, how in the world do we react to his unique authority today? How should we, who have experienced his work and his word in our hearts, how should we testify to Jesus' unique authority as Christians? Ask yourself this this morning. I've been asking myself this question. Are we, are we so astonished and amazed by Jesus' life-giving teaching that's within our hearts by his Spirit? And his, his power over the evil that had possessed us. Are we, are we so astonished by these things that we externally and explosively seek to spread his fame? You want to know the power of evangelism? You, know what, you want to know what that is? You know what powers evangelism? It's this. Amazement. Astonishment. Over the word that he has spoken to you. That he has given to you in these 66 books. And how that word is used to set you free from evil. That should cause you and I to evangelize, I would say, explosively. Spontaneously. I mean, when we leave a worship service, whether it's a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning... Do we go throughout the regions of Ada and Stratford and Bing and Latta and spread the fame of Jesus' authority over our lives? These are things to think about. This, This testimony that was being given, it worked in many ways to to really spread out the gospel message in that region. And it spread to those who were, as we'll see in a few moments, those who were hopeless and without any, any kind of care 
from others in this area. And it also spread into the hearts of those who were with Jesus when he went into the synagogue. Just imagine what the disciples were thinking when they saw this. Don't you think that it encouraged their hearts? I mean, we're going to follow him for the rest of our life. And they really, they really haven't seen all that's being displayed at this point until now. And then they begin to see, wait a minute, all these people are, are testifying to what we know internally. What we know from his teaching personally. I think that the, the disciples were amazed by this as well. And I think that their hearts were swelling with encouragement. As ours should be. When we hear these words. And know that this is our king. Who saved us. And who has called us into his mission. Look at verses 29 to 31. And here we're going to see the second testimony about Jesus' divine mission. And it's, it's given, really, by his actions. The second testimony is found in this passage here, 29 to 31. And it testifies to Jesus' not just his, his unique authority, but his uncommon mercy. And listen, folks, that is the way in which he works. His authority and his mercy are joined together. They are never separated. He is authoritative. He is king, but he is full of divine compassion, as we'll see. It says in verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Now, wait a second. Why do you think they did that? I mean, these, these men had just been with him in this synagogue setting, watching what was happening, listening to his teaching. And when they come back to Simon's house to really to rest, that's why they came back there. I mean, you have to realize Jesus spent the entire day in that synagogue. People weren't leaving. It's not like some places where the 12 o'clock bell hits in the church and everybody scatters. These people were staying because they were being nourished by Jesus. But Jesus came back here to rest. And the encouragement I think that's evident in the disciples is this. When, when they walked into the house, Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was supposed to have dinner ready. And she didn't. She was sick. And what do they do? Let's go to the one with authority. Let's go to the one with mercy. Let's go to Jesus. It says immediately when they walk in and see this sick woman, they told Jesus about her. And then one of the most touching and sensitive, I think, testimonies of Jesus' uncommon mercy is the next sentence. And he came. They called and he came. And it says he took her by the hand. And lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Verse 30. Says that this woman had a, a fever. In the Greek it's pereso. She had a fever in her body. It was a really high grade fever. She was burning up. It was dangerous. In Dr. Luke's account of this same story. In Luke 40 or 4. Verse 38, I'm not going to read it, but in this text, Luke uses some very clear words to describe this fever. He basically says, I think in the New American Standard, he says, 
she was in the grip of a high fever. And Mark's gospel tells us that when the disciples saw this, when Peter saw this, they reacted immediately by the encouragement they'd received from Christ's authority. They immediately went to the one who had divine authority, knowing that with that authority, there was also something glorious, power to cure this woman. They'd seen that power displayed in the casting out of the demon-possessed man. Look at Jesus' response to their trust, their they're calling upon him. Look at it, what it says in verse 31. It says, he, he came and took her by the hand. It's a touching, touching text. He took her by the hand. Look at the tender mercy of King Jesus, the one with authority to cast out demons directly. He touched a woman to heal her. Now, did Jesus have to do that? To heal that woman's fever? Couldn't the creator of the universe simply have walked into the room and said, fever gone. Like he said to the demon possessed man, shut up and it was done. He didn't lay hands on the man to cast out the demon. But here he lays hands on the woman. Testifying to not only his divine authority, but his divine mercy. Have you ever thought about that? Think about this when you read things like this. He personally comes to her to care for her and free her from this fever. The text tells us he raised her up. And we know that he raised her up by his kingdom authority. Yet he did so incarnationally. He did so with gentle hands. Hands filled with Uncommon mercy. Hands that would also be nailed to a cross to express uncommon mercy beyond belief towards sinners who are not in the grip of a high fever but in the grip of death. And he would take our place by laying his hands, so to speak, upon us at the cross. Now, there's a lot in this. There's so many things that I think about when I read this. Just the, the, the picture of the incarnate God who moved from this authoritative setting into this, this compassionate setting and how both of those are, are wedded together perfectly in Jesus. And he comes in and he expresses authority and he expresses mercy. And I think, what's the lesson for me? I can't heal people. You can't heal people. God can heal people. And God can touch people. And he often does so through our hands, through our words, as we follow Christ. As we are his disciples, we should follow his example. He would reach out to the hurting. We should want to do the same thing because that's what he did for us. He reached out and healed us eternally. And now we can be his hands and his mouth to proclaim his word boldly with authority from his word. And we can personally care for people 
with great mercy because that's what he has shown us. There's much to learn from Jesus' simple touch of this fever-ridden woman. I really just can't get over that. I mean, this is a man who had a task. He had a mission, right? And what did his mission testify to here? When God sends his son into the world, he cares for sinners. And he has the power to set them free from what is gripping them. His mercy toward us, I think she caused us to want to do the same thing for the hopeless, for the hurting. We see that happening in the next few verses. In verse 32 to 34, we see him move from this, really this helpless woman in a fever to a hopeless mob of people. Here we'll see that Jesus' uncommon mercy will be testified to by the hopeless. Look what it says, verse 32, that it, that evening... That evening at sundown, they brought to him all, circle that, who were sick or oppressed by demons. And that's an ugly sight. You ever thought about that? Think about this. I mean, do you want this? All. That's all as in the region of of Galilee. That's a lot of people. It was a mob. It wasn't a pleasant mob. Have you ever been in the emergency room at a hospital? It's not a pleasant place. I remember taking Haddon when his eye was injured when he was about five. We had to go to Children's Hospital to the emergency room. And I remember walking into the, the waiting area at some point and just seeing all these desperate and hurting and, and obviously bloody and and disgusting looking children it was sad it was disheartening but it was a little bit on the gross side too nobody likes to see this but through jesus's testimony of his authority and his mercy god's bringing this to pass for a reason and here's what's happening the testimony of what jesus was saying in the synagogue and his power over demons was spreading. Remember what I said. They, they came out of the synagogue and they began to, to, to declare his fame throughout all the region. Well, who do you think is going to be drawn to this? People who have been possessed and see one who has the power to set them free. People who are oppressed, people who are spiritually really helpless and physically helpless to make themselves well, they hear that There's one who can do this. There's one who came and expressed this. And so these people were drawn to the authority and the mercy of Jesus. These people were drawn there, I think, because they needed more than what the spiritual leaders of their day were offering. They needed someone with divine authority and with divine mercy. And that wasn't happening in the synagogue for the most part. The spiritual leaders in their day were holding out theological answers to their problems. But they were withholding God's mercy. You remember the story of Jesus and the disciples when they're walking along and there's this blind man. And they say to Jesus, who sinned, his mother or his father, that would make him to be blind, basically is what they say. And Jesus says, you know, 
neither one is the reason. He's blind so that I can do this, and he heals him to glorify God. The disciples were a lot like the the spiritual leaders at this time in the synagogue. They saw a blind man and they saw, saw a theological problem. They didn't see a person. Jesus sees the man and he sees a way to magnify his mercy through him. That's what's happening here. These people recognized they needed someone who had this power to set them free, to give them hope but also the mercy to reach out and touch them. I love the next passage of Scripture that I'll actually preach through. I've preached through it probably three times here. You guys are going to hear it again in a few weeks. But it's the story of Christ and the leper and how that Jesus is the only one who embraces the leper, takes him into his bosom to cleanse him by receiving his defilement. It's that kind of divine authority and mercy that we all need today. Because we are just as hopeless as these people in this text. And the time that they were dealing with this, they had been rejected. These people were not able to come into the synagogue at this time. So they come to this house where there is hope. Because Jesus is in it. And the... Leaders had rejected them, but now Jesus is receiving them with uncommon mercy. It was not common in this day for a rabbi, a spiritual leader, to interact with the defiled, the dirty, the rejects. I'm certainly glad he still does that today. Because that's what we are, apart from his grace. And that's the kind of mercy that we need to testify to as a church, when we see these kinds of people knocking on our door? How do we testify to this kind of uncommon mercy that we see in Jesus? How do we, how do we testify to his uncommon mercy and authority today? Do we as his people, as his ambassadors, do we simply know how to give people answers to their problems from a distance? Or are we seeking to incarnate his message personally by embracing the hurting? It's not easy to do that. You you realize if you do prison ministry, you do nursing home ministry, you do street ministry, you do any kind of ministry, you're going to get dirty. Because that's where you're going is to the world. And they are defiled, not because they are bad people per se, but because they are infected by their sin and they don't know anything but sin and they walk in that. And you go to them and you don't look at them and say, oh, you need to quit doing these things and clean your life up and come to Jesus. Now you bring Jesus's mercy and authority to them that will set them free and cleanse them. But you got to go to them and if you go to them, you're going to get a little dirty along the way. Not sinful. What I mean is, it may be costly. It may be hard. It may even spoil your day and your plans. It seemed to do that with Jesus here. I'm pretty sure he wanted to go to Peter's house to take a nap after preaching, because that's what I want to do. Okay, Every time I preach, Justin, Ronnie, Nate will all testify, Sunday afternoon is a nap. I'm exhausted. One man's estimated that one hour preaching in the pulpit is equal to eight hours of hard labor. 
I would agree with that. And I'm sure that Jesus' day was disrupted by this mob. But his mercy was greater than the disruption. And if, if we keep that in mind, I think it will help us whenever we have people knocking at our door as they did at Simon Peter's house, looking for hope because they know that we have the authoritative words of Jesus and his power has transformed us mercifully. That's what's happening in this text. Whenever I come to verse 32, I I always am amazed by it. But the first time I came to this, I wrote this down in my notes, I, I came to this text and asked, why were there so many sick and oppressed people in this region? I mean, I wouldn't want to go there, right? I mean, I have a hard time walking into that emergency room without getting a, a you know a bottle of you know that alcohol stuff that you wash your hands with, right? I, I can't I can't take it, all right? It's just too much for me. Why were there so many? I, I, would, I would like that region would be here to my right, and I would go way out here to the left and just avoid it altogether. Because I don't want to get into that. But that's not the case with Jesus. But I I still ask myself, why is the the sickness and oppression so excessively displayed in this region? You guys have any answer for that? I had to do some study to get that. Here's part of the reason. Why I'll say this. Demonic activity at the time of Jesus was heightened more than we've ever seen in history. Because of Jesus' incarnation. They couldn't help but respond to his presence on earth, their creator and their judge. But, but secondly, here in this case, with just including the sick people, what I, what I found out about this, why, why there were so many people sick here is this. According to history, this region was known for its hot mineral springs. And people believed that the waters in this region had healing properties And in the time of Christ, they were attracted to those waters. It would bring in the sick and the demonized from every part of the country. That's what's going on here. That's why they're providentially gathered in that region. But ultimately, they're gathered to give testimony to Jesus' mercy. They would be used by God to testify that God's divine compassion had come in the work of the great physician. As he came into their region. Verse 33, that's what we see happening. The whole city was gathered together at the door. So that night, remember this is after a day of preaching and teaching and rebuking. That night at Peter's home, they were mobbed by a diseased and demonized crowd. Now now I'm going to ask you to use some sanctified imagination here. I want you to try to imagine this. Try to imagine what this crowd sounded like outside the door. What does it sound like when you're with sick people? I'm going to tell you some graphic things. You hear moaning. You hear crying. You hear vomiting. You hear agony. That's what we, they were hearing. That's what it sounded like. What do you think it smelt like? It's not pleasant. It's horrible. Imagine what it looked like. 
They weren't just lined up in a nice row. They were everywhere, spread out, sick, defiled, oppressed by demons. If you can imagine that, imagine this. Imagine Jesus, the creator of those people. Imagine his incarnate eyes seeing what sin has done to mankind in full display. Imagine the Creator's sorrow as He saw this. Imagine His sorrow as He smelt this, as He, as he heard these cries for help. He does something that no one else would at this time. He shows uncommon mercy to these people. He's not repulsed by them. He actually labors with them. Literally, when you read this text, He labors with them all night long. That's not because he had to. It's because he wanted to. Look what it says in verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Now, I think the reason it says many who were sick, not all who were sick, I just think there were that many people. He could not have reached every single one. And I think that in that, even in that little phrase, it's telling us that he was spending time with each and every individual he healed. Unlike the spiritual leaders of his day. He also cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now as compassionate as Jesus was. His authority didn't diminish at all. You can see that in the text. The demons still want to disrupt his merciful ministry. But he doesn't even allow them to speak. So again we see divine authority and divine mercy. Wedded together in this. This is an amazing testimony of his uncommon mercy. Here's kind of what's happening so far in his mission. I've mentioned this a couple of times just so you understand the intensity of this. He's just spent the entire day preaching, rebuking, teaching. And then he goes to Peter's house to find rest. And all he finds is sickness. All he finds is desperation. Hopelessness. Mobs of miserable, sick, and oppressed people. But then he spends the entire night caring for them personally. He doesn't dismiss them. He could have. This is the king. He's on a mission. He's got things to do. He's got places to go. But what's he do? He spends the entire night being spent physically for the hurting. And he never complains about it. You guys ever do any kind of ministry at all and come back to your spouse and say, yeah, it was so hard. Those people were so hard-headed. No one listened. It was a tough day. Feel sorry for me. Jesus never does that. He is humanly exhausted. He is worn down. He needed what we all need because he was truly man as well as truly God. He needed physical rest. But instead of seeking what he desired, he displays great humility to what God desires. He submits to the Father's will and seeks his strength in another way, not through physical rest. He knew that his strength for his mission had to come from God's Wisdom, God's direction. 
and through his submission to God's will. And there was no way for him to know that but through prayer, communication with his father. Look at verse 35. Here we hear the third testimony about Jesus' divine mission. Here Jesus testifies to his unwavering humility. This is the one who had all authority. This is the one who has all this great mercy. And then he, this is the one who submits willfully. I think displaying his great humility. It says in verse 35 says, and rising very early in the morning. The reason it's there stated as very early is he hasn't went to bed yet. It's still dark, 4 a.m., 3 a.m. He just goes out from what he's doing right into prayer. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This, this testifies to his humility, but it also testifies to his divinity, because after doing that all night, if you went out to pray and close your eyes... Physically, you're going to be asleep. But there was something driving Jesus. And I think if it grabbed hold of us, maybe we couldn't sleep either. Maybe we would get up and pray like this. He was on a mission to reach the lost with the good news from God that he had been given, that he was incarnate. And so even though his physical body cried out for rest, he says, no, I must press on to do what God wills. That is my rest. That's what I'll trust in. This testifies to us. His unwavering humility here testifies to us that Jesus understood the essential nature of prayer in his mission. And I hope we get this. I know Ronnie's been trying to emphasize this through prayer meetings. But you see this being displayed here. It is preeminent. It is most important to Jesus to pray rather than sleep. And if we see here in this text that God incarnate, who is physically worn, if God incarnate would get up early after laboring like this, and go pray to find strength for his mission, then we should pray much more than we do. Right? If we want to magnify his mission, that's what we're called to do. We're his ambassadors. If we want to magnify his mission, we better do what he's doing here. When you feel completely exhausted in your ministry, remember Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The one who has given you strength spiritually to go on into his mission by his means. It is amazing, even though as, as tired as I may be in prayer at times, how God will stir up passion, conviction, and humility in me. So that I can do the work of the ministry God's called me into. That's by his grace, not because of my strength. In this text, just real quickly as a side note, Jesus is teaching us something very important about prayer and proclamation and mercy. He's teaching us that the proclamation of God's authoritative word, the gospel, and the ministry of mercy must be linked to prayer. We need God's 
direction and we need God to sustain us in our mission. In prayer, here's what's going on. We are confessing to God what Jesus was confessing in his humanity, that he was in need of God's strength and direction. We're revealing our submission to God as Jesus was here. We're seeking to follow God's direction by humbling our hearts. Listen, God doesn't speak to you verbally. All right, we get that. He speaks to us in his word. But he does prepare our hearts to receive that when we bow low before him in prayer submitted to his direction in spite of our feelings. Jesus felt like moving on, I'm sure, but he submitted. Because this prayer that he was offering, it helped him to focus on his mission. And listen, when we feel overwhelmed by our mission, by our calling to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, we need to find our focus in prayer as Jesus did. It's easy to go astray without prayer in our mission. In prayer, Jesus was getting refocused to see the big picture of his mission here on earth. And then the text that we're going to look at next reminds us of why that's important. Peter and the other guys didn't have the big picture. Without prayer, we cannot see God's big picture. If, if I was doing this, if, if this was me, if, if I was Peter, I would have done the same exact thing. There's a large crowd, Jesus. Let's set up shop here in Galilee. This is where our ministry headquarters will be located from here on out. We got a big group of people. We can do great things with all these people you're healing. I think that's going through the disciples' mind. Look what it says in verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him... They couldn't find Jesus. He's out praying. It's still dark. He's, they're looking for him. They searched for him. Verse 37 says, they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And this is a, sort of a rebuke. It's like, what are you thinking? You're out there praying. These people need you, Jesus. But Jesus knew what was most important. It was most important and necessary for him to be seeking the Father's will In his mission. Though these men were excited about the crowd. Jesus knew what he needed to be doing. He knew this. He knew that the physical healing ministry. Was but that of common grace. And his greater duty. And his greater mission was. To bring saving grace. Through the preaching of God's good news. That's the big picture here. He he saw past the immediate to go to what was most important. And I think that he gave us this example here so that we could keep our eyes really focused. Sometimes we'll see immediate needs. We're going to help this helpless person to the point and detriment of their own soul because we're not feeding them spiritually. We're feeding their body. We're taking care of their needs, but we're not giving them the gospel. And he makes a a point here of saying he's got something more important to do. That is to preach the good news. And I think that's important for us because this is replicatable in those who are his followers. We can do this. I can't heal the sick, but I can move on to the next person and share the saving grace of God in the gospel. And so verse 38, he says to them, let us go on. This is the most important thing. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach. May preach there also, for that is why I came out. That's why he came out at his baptism And was testified to by God as being 
God's son. This is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now that passage testifies to Jesus's, I think, unwavering humility as God's submissive servant. In spite of the circumstance. His prayer to God and his submission to God in prayer led him to humbly testify that he had to follow God's will, not his own feelings. I know he wanted to heal those people. He wasn't forced to do it. It's obvious that Jesus had real spiritual heartache over those people. He labored with them all night long. It's obvious that he cared. But his submission to God's direction was more important. And it caused him to focus on the greater picture. Because as great as that mercy ministry was that he expressed in their physical healing, there was a greater ministry to come, a greater mercy to come that would come through his preaching mission. You're the evidence of that. You're like the mob gathered at Peter's door. Except now you're not just merely physically healed one time in your life. You're eternally healed by the word of Christ. Because he followed God's big picture by submitting to him humbly. Even though internally you know that Jesus wanted to be with those people. He loved them. And I don't mean in a saving way. It doesn't have to mean that. Listen, Jesus loves his creatures. He loves people. They are made in his image. And he expresses common grace to unbelievers every single day. But there's a greater mercy that's given to the unbeliever when we preach the gospel to them that testifies to who Jesus is and what he would do to bring eternal healing to those who are spiritually ill and oppressed by sin. His submission in prayer, I think, testifies to his, as I said, unwavering humility in his mission. Just think about this as I conclude. Think about how his submission has actually in this text already been seen in every testimony that I've read to you today. First, he authoritatively testified that he was submitted to God by becoming God's divine messenger that would uphold his word authoritatively. Jesus' merciful testimony of reaching out to the hurting testified that he was submitted to being God's great physician that would bring hope to the hurting. And Jesus humbly testified in this passage we just read that he was submitted to being God's submissive servant that would follow his will completely. Now, I'm glad for that because I don't follow his will completely. I don't see the big picture, but Jesus did for me. And his grace overcomes my lack of obedience many times. But I want to testify to all these things I think you want that too. So here's what I want to ask you this morning as I end. What does our testimony about Jesus reveal about his divine mission? What does our testimony about Jesus reveal about his 
divine mission. Does it reveal this? Are you submitted to God's will? Do you personally proclaim his authoritative word with conviction, with boldness? If you don't, you're not submitted to his will. Do you mercifully reflect his compassion to the hurting? If you don't, you're not submitting to his will. Do you humbly pray for God's direction? Again, if you don't, you're not submitted to God's will. Does that mean that Christ's mission has failed? No. He has greater mercy and grace for failures like us. He will, through preaching, convict our hearts and transform our actions. And he will complete the work he began in us. And that work is to make much of him. That's our mission. We are to testify to his unique authority by holding forth his word boldly. We are to testify to his uncommon mercy by incarnating it personally. We are to testify to his unwavering humility by submitting to God prayerfully. And if you're a believer here this morning, he will cultivate that in your soul. I do truly believe that. It will never be the perfection of your life, but it will be the direction of your life as one who has been saved by Jesus. It is your desire. And today you can ask him to stir that desire up. Let's pray that he'll do that in all of our hearts so that we can testify to the glory of his accomplished mission. Heavenly Father, thank you for the testimony that we've been given from your word. Thank you for showing us the unique authority of King Jesus. Thank you for showing us his uncommon mercy and his unwavering humility that transforms all of us because he submitted himself to do your will to save many. And we are the testimony today of his great mission being accomplished. Now, there are many more yet to be saved, and you, God, have, have given us this knowledge, this understanding, this mercy, so that we could be your ambassadors and reflect and testify to the great word and works of Jesus, to the lost and the hurting. And I pray that you would grant us that this morning, not simply for our good, though it's good for us, but I pray you grant this to us for Jesus' praise. God, I, I, just, I just want to spread his fame. I just want people to know who it is that saves sinners to the utmost. God, I pray that you would help us all here to submit to that which you have given us in your word this morning. So again, that we would become truly ambassadors of Christ and reveal his mission to the lost. I pray that in his name. Amen.